No. Um, I'm excited to be. I'm excited to be able to share with you guys this morning. I think uh, the the chapter ahead of us is is interesting, and not only is it interesting, it's. Um, I think there's a prophetic word in here for heritage, as we'll as we'll talk about. I think uh, the reason that I told Jeff I wanted to do it rather than maybe picking a topic or something to teach on was because I, I truthfully believe that God had a word for you guys and for myself, for our church, um, within this text, and I'm, I'm just jazzed to share it with you guys. Um, so, tongues and prophecy is the subject of this chapter, as we're going to see. Um, probably one of the more controversial subjects in uh, modern Christianity right now. Um, there's been more books written about the prophetic or tongues uh, gifts. There's been more books written about that specific subject in the last 50 years than there has in the entirety of, of uh, Christian, the Christian age before that, which is crazy, which means that it's, it's fairly widely debated. And I can imagine that uh, most of you guys in this room have different experiences with things like the gifts of tongues and gifts of prophecy. And it's going to be uh, something that I'm going to try to hopefully address well and, and without pride. Um, and something that we can together just see what the Bible says about it. Um, so let's read it together. 1 Corinthians 14, starting in verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. <clears throat> For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? I brought a flute and a harp just to illustrate that, so look forward to that. If the bugle, oh, bugle too, and if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? Verse 9, so with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker, a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Verse 13, therefore one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an in the position of an outsider, say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying. For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. And the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me. 
says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much, God, that uh, you give us such clarity. Lord, you give us instruction. Father, you give us wisdom on these things, Lord. I pray this morning, God, that you would uh, allow me to step out of the way, and that, Holy Spirit, you would be our teacher this morning. God, for those of us in this room this morning that maybe um, are a little confused about these things, God, that you would bring some clarity Father, I pray for those, Lord, that maybe would be hardened to these gifts, Lord, that their heart would be softened. I pray, Lord, for those that would maybe be overemphasizing these gifts, Lord, that you would show them wisdom. God, I pray that at Heritage, Lord, we would be a church that is open to all that you have, God, but grounded in truth. Jesus, please speak through me. Make me your mouthpiece. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So there it is. That'll be our text for this morning. Um, I gotta, I'll start off with a little, bit of, a little bit of my experience in life as we're talking about these, these gifts, the prophecies and tongues and things like that. Um, I grew up in a pretty conservative uh, style church. Uh, would probably be considered the church that maybe doesn't really believe in the gifts of tongues and prophecies for this age. They believe that it ceased, as we'll learn about. And so I wasn't really exposed to tongues. I wasn't really exposed to gifts of prophecy or things like that as a kid. It was something that would be a little bit, little bit strange for me. When I was 15, I went to a youth group at a four-square church, which was a huge life changer for me. And the second I walked through the door, I remember it vividly, the first time I walked through the door, I saw worship flags on the wall. I was like, what are those? And then I looked to my right and I saw a room labeled cry room. Okay, and I thought, oh, maybe that's for babies. No, (laughs) not for babies. It's for people that are crying and need to go pray and have cry time. Um, Totally different experience. Worship starts, all of a sudden all my friends are like raising their hands and clapping between songs and stuff like, stuff I just wasn't really like sure what to think of it yet. And that was even just sort of a mild charismatic church. Then, I hope I don't fall off the stage, I'm not used to being this far up. Then when I, when I was 17, I went to a conference center uh, that was Foursquare, and I met a ton of amazing pastors from California, Foursquare pastors. Um, some of them just love Jesus so much and are so filled with the Spirit. Um, but I also saw some crazier things then, too. Uh, we had what was called guest groups that would come in and rent the facility. And my apartment, as an intern for a year, my apartment was underneath the worship center. So I would hear everything that went on up there. And we had some of these really hardcore Pentecostal groups come in, and, and they would do some crazy stuff. On, I mean, over my head at 12 o'clock when I was trying to sleep. I mean, we're talking like getting drunk in the spirit and just like crazy, some crazy Pentecostal stuff. So I, I experienced a little bit of it then. And then... Uh, my, my next experience there was probably at a church that, that's somewhere closer to where we're at, um, where they do believe these gifts um, 
are still present, but maybe they just don't do them in that extreme kind of way. So this was an interesting study for me because I personally wanted to get into the scriptures and say, Lord, what is, what is your heart really for these gifts? Because I can, we can tend to go to one extreme or the other. I don't want anything to do with anything like that, anything kind of charismatic, Pentecostal stuff, or I want all of that and I don't want any of the other side. So I want us to see this morning from the scriptures what's really there. My approach to studying this text, just so you know, hopefully is going to be uh, not, not too biased. What does the scripture say? And then where are we at heritage? Where, where, do, we, where do we rest on this? Um, a few things we're going to talk about is, uh, number one, what are tongues? What are New Testament tongues? What, are, what is the gift of tongues? Uh, number two, what is biblical New Testament prophecy? Give a, a, kind of a name and definition to that. Uh, what biblical New Testament prophecy is not? Um, how these gifts have been abused and how they are to be used. And hopefully as a church, God can, uh, can really uh, maybe just awaken some things in, in this fellowship. So there's two camps. Just to get a little bit of homework. Now, this is going to be some groundwork. It might be a, little, a, a lot of information, but let's get through it. And then I have something for you guys at the end. I think that, that is God's real heart in this text. But there's two camps. This is review. There's two camps that really split up most of Christianity today, at least in America. There is what would be called the cessationist group and the continuationist group. Let me explain that really quick. The cessationists believe, um, as Jeff has said before, but the cessationists believe that the gifts, specifically the gifts of tongues, prophecy, healing, those type, that those ceased with the end of the apostolic age. So when the the apostles uh, were gone, that gift ceased, and now we have the Holy Scriptures, and the Holy Spirit illuminates his word and speaks to his people through the Scriptures. The continuationist, and this is a broad, I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush, but the continuationist would believe that those gifts have not ceased, that they've continued on, and they will continue on. Now the verse here, I'm going to read it really quick, you don't have to flip there. The verse that is really debated between these two groups is 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 12. It says, love never ends, as we just studied this a few weeks ago. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge... It will pass away. So we see that these gifts are going to cease. The question isn't, are they going to cease? It's when, okay? It says, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So the question is, and the thing that's debated between these two groups concerning these gifts, is when, does, when do these partials pass away? Some people would say, as I said, the cessationists would believe it would be at the end of the apostolic age. Others would say it's at heaven. So when we go to heaven, that's when those gifts cease, Okay, that's kind of the two main camps there. So when do the gifts cease? Let's start by looking here. I want to take a a brief look, mostly at our text and some other verses, at prophecy. What is the gift of New Testament prophecy? I don't know if you guys have ever had someone come up to you and give you a prophetic word or someone that would claim to have maybe the gift of um, prophecy. I think we need to give that a little bit of a label and understand what that is as the church. So let's start by looking at Old Testament prophecy. It's important that we understand that there's a difference between Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy. Here we got that? Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy. Old Testament prophecy was literally the inerrant word of God spoke through his prophets to the people. Okay, this was an actual, this is God's exact words. They would say things like, thus saith the Lord. We, we see prophets in the Old Testament such as Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Daniel, um, all of the Aaron, diff- different prophets at that time that were, that were literally called to be the mouthpiece of God for Israel. So like, for instance, Daniel, when he prophesied that there would be all of these nations that would come in and rule over Israel, such as the Roman Empire, such as uh, the Syrian Empire, such as the Greeks, different 
different empires he was prophesying there. Or, it, or Isaiah, when he prophesies of Jesus coming on the cross 700 years before he came, that was a prophecy, a revelatory prophecy that was given in the Old Testament. Okay, now after 400 years, the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. After 400 years of silence, then Jesus steps onto the scene. Okay, listen, we get this from Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So we see there the author of Hebrews laying it out, saying that before Christ came, God spoke to his people through the prophets. And in this last time, he has spoken to them through his son, Jesus Christ. The Bible is now the means by which God communicates to his people first and foremost. Now, what is New Testament prophecy? Let's start with what New Testament prophecy isn't. Okay, and this is where I hopefully won't offend anyone. Um, What New Testament prophecy isn't, first of all, it's not a fortune cookie generality such as God's releasing double blessings today. Okay? It's not a fortune cookie generality of just throwing things out there to someone that you maybe don't even know and and saying something that could really work for anyone. Hey, in three days you're going to have a okay day. And it's not necessarily the New Testament gift of biblical prophecy. New Testament prophecy is not walking up to a stranger and telling them what they had for breakfast. Okay? I've had an experience like this. I was in Reading. I went down to Jesus Culture to check out the Pentecostal thing down there. And um, I was at In-N-Out, me and my friend, and this was, I was like 16 or so, 17. And I'm wearing like tight pants. I have a drum key on my keys. I'm wearing like a a band t-shirt and a bandana long hair. I look like I'm in a band. I just, I was. I was a band guy. Everybody knew that. My friend, he's wearing like skinny jeans and skate shoes and a thrasher shirt. He is obviously a skateboarder. And we, you could, anyone could have had us pegged. These girls walk up and they, they go, yeah, hey guys, are, I'm just, the, the Lord's just speaking to me. Are you into arts? Like, are you into music? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and then she goes to my friend, are you a into skateboarding by chance? And she did that. So, skateboarding? He's like, yes. And then she, I don't even remember what she did. She, she went on to say some extremely fortune cookie general thing that didn't really apply to us in any way. Um, but it was like, she was just like this, this really mystical, like, uh, horoscope type thing. It, it was just really unaffected and really unedifying for me. And in fact, it was kind of a turnoff to the whole thing. Um, this is not what the New Testament gift of prophecy is. It's just not. Um, thirdly, it's not, or I'm sorry, New Testament prophecy does not hold the same credibility as Scripture. I can't say that enough. Scripture is our highest authority, okay? I don't care if someone comes up to you and says that the rapture is going to come at a certain time. It, does, it just doesn't hold up. I don't care if someone comes up to you and says, yeah, the Book of Mormon is actually true. It just doesn't hold up. I don't care if it's a biblical prophecy or not. It has to be weighed and tested. The scriptures are in the highest authority. Scripture is the infallible word of God. Prophetic word is man's fallible understanding of God's word, which means I can get it wrong. So I could be giving you a prophetic word, but it may not be right. So that's why we hold it to the scriptures, because the scriptures are God's perfect, breathed, infallible word of God. 
2 Timothy 3.16, just for a, a verse for that, says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It's breathed out by God. Scripture is the literal, infallible word of God. That's why we hold it in the highest esteem. That's why we spend time searching it, studying it, looking through it, and talking about it. So what is New Testament prophecy? The gift of New Testament prophecy is a spirit-filled word of encouragement or rebuke that fits within the confines of Scripture spoken at an appropriate time and in a biblical way. I'll say it again. The gift of New Testament prophecy is a spirit-filled word of encouragement or rebuke that fits within the confines of Scripture spoken at an appropriate time and a biblical way. So what do we know about New Testament prophecy from the Scriptures? Here's three things. Number one, we know about New Testament prophecy that it is to be valued. We find this in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19. It says, do not quench the spirit. Paul says, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Okay? So we're not to despise this gift of New Testament prophecy. It's to be valued. It's important. It has a place. Okay? Secondly, something we can know about it, it's to be tested. It is to be tested. 1 Corinthians 14, 29 through 30, that's what you guys will be in next week, says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. Okay, so that doesn't mean that someone could just get up and say a prophecy and say this is a revelation and, and it doesn't go unchecked. It has to be held to scripture. It has to be examined. It has to be weighed. Paul gives this very specific boundary around it. I'll give you an example. Uh, the, the truth of the matter is, is that false prophecy can be detrimental to the sheep. It can be detrimental to the sheep, okay? I, I, was, I was watching a, an interview of John Piper, one of my favorite pastors, and he was talking about his views on New Testament prophecy, and he said that he had a gal come up to him after he got off uh, the pulpit and was done teaching, and she said, I have a prophetic word for you, okay? And he said, okay, you know, respect it, you know, I'll hear it. And she told him that his fourth child would be a girl, okay, and that his wife would die in childbearing. And John Piper's just like, Ugh. <laughs> he went home and he just wept bitterly and he just held that inside. It was something that he, he wrestled with and struggled with until his wife had a fourth child who was a boy and his wife is still alive, praise the Lord, right? In the Old Testament, they would have stoned her, right? No, I'm just kidding. They would have, but, actually, but we, don't, we don't stone But my point is, <laughs> John Piper may have wanted to at that time. My point is, it's detrimental. It's not something to be thrown around. If you think you have a revelatory prophecy for someone of what's going to happen, especially one like that, good grief, go talk to the elders about it. Look at the scriptures. I mean, pray through that one, because you could cripple someone with that. You could cripple someone with that. Thirdly, things we can know about the New Testament prophecy. It has to edify. Now look at our text in verse 3. It says, On the other hand, Paul says, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. For their upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. It has to fall under those three categories. If you had a word of prophecy for someone, it better be encouraging, it better be upbuilding, and it better be a word of consolation. That's what Paul says. It has to edify. I had an example of someone giving me a, a prophecy when I was in my internship at the Four Square Conference Center. This gal 
She was like a grandma to us. She was, she was with us all the time. She taught us our Pacific Bible College classes. Uh, we were always at her house. She was always cooking us meals. She knew us. She loved us. She prayed for us. She gave us scriptures. She, 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 she constantly um, was just being loving for us. And at the end of our internship, after a whole year, she wrote me this, this page of just a prophetic word for me. And it was like, I mean, at this time, I, I didn't really quite know whether I was for sure wanting to go be a pastor. I didn't know if I wanted to t- preach the word. I didn't know. But it was just so specific about what my life would be consistent of. Searching the scriptures, teaching the scriptures. I mean, it, it, it was just spot on. And it was extremely encouraging for me. It's something I hold very dear. It was a gift for me. It was special for me. First Peter 4.10 says, As each has received a gift... Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Do you guys realize that you're stewards of God's grace? That you have been given grace and that God allows you to steward his grace to give it to others. When you give a prophetic gift to someone and it should be presented that way as a gift, realize that you're stewarding the grace of God. It better be encouraging, upbuilding, and upholding because the grace of God is. Amen? Let's look at tongues. So we can just, we can just kind of, the elephant in the room, tongues are kind of weird if you're not used to them, right? Right? Come on. They're kind of weird if you're not used to them, right? You're leaving me hanging here. I, I got something for you. This is a freebie, okay? So if you guys are ever in a Pentecostal church and, and, and the preacher's like, okay, we're all going to speak in tongues at the same time. And you're like, oh, I don't speak in tongues. What do I do? All you have to do, and I write this down, all you have to do is say, I bought a Suzuki, I should have bought a Honda. Really fast, over and over again. I bought a Suzuki, should have bought a Honda. And it, no one's going to know. No one's going to know the difference. Okay? <laughs> so you're good. Okay, write that down. That was edifying, right? <laughs> Applicable, relevant, good. Okay. <laughs> oh, man, I hope that doesn't get me in trouble. So some different groups about tongues. Now, this was interesting for me. Again, I I was kind of starting from scratch in a lot of ways studying this. But as I was studying tongues, I found that there's actually lots of different groups within the charismatic movement that would would support these tongues in in different styles. Now, the first one is some some people that believe, some continuationists, if I can use that word, continuationists believe that when you speak a tongue, when you speak a tongue, you're actually speaking a literal heavenly language that's translatable by the Lord. So it's an actual language, okay? Um, you, can decide, you can decide on these where you guys stand. I'm not going to tell you what to believe on that. But that's one view of the gift of tongues, okay? It's a heavenly language that God discerns, but it is a real language. Now, I watched an interesting um, Nightline episode about tongues, secular point of view, of course, but they hooked up some people that speak in tongues to um, some brain things, you know, to see what's going on up there, and they concluded that nothing was going on up there when they spoke in tongues, which makes sense, and, and even the charismatics would say, yeah, we don't know what we're saying, I mean, we're just, we're just talking, it's interesting, and they also read some articles that said that the interesting thing about those that would claim it's a real actual language, too, is that the people that are in America that speak in tongues, they use American dialect and American pronunciation, whereas the French guy uses French dialect and French pronunciation. So if it was a real language, I, weigh it out. I don't know. I thought that was interesting. 
Second, the second type um, that they believe is that there's, there, it's not so much a real heavenly language as much as it is just sort of like, it is sort of babble, but God discerns it. So it's almost like the groaning that we read about, like, like God gets what I'm saying, you know, and I, I, maybe it's like beyond what words can explain type of thing. They also, they also explain, uh, the Pentecostals would say that there are hot tongues and cold tongues. I thought that was funny. I never heard of that before. Hot tongues and cold tongues. Hot tongues would be um, when you're like in a, like sort of an, an uh, ecstatic, uh, you've turned your brain off and you've kind of given yourself over to your feelings um, and you just kind of go crazy. I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, but that's what they would call hot tongues. So when you see, like, when you watch, like, Benny Hinn or something, um, and he's, like, slaying people, and people are just kind of going crazy and speaking in tongues, and it's just craziness, that's, that's hot tongues, okay? <laughs> then cold tongues would probably be more, for most of you that come from Calvary Chapel, this would be more what you would think of is where you're in your prayer closet, you're doing it to yourself, um, your mind is still working, you know, you're not just, like, opening yourself up, and um, it's, that's cold tongues. Write this down. No lukewarm tongues. Okay? Hot tongues, cold tongues, no lukewarm tongues. It's important. There's a verse about that in Revelation. Um, Also, there is what I believe to be an actual gift of earthly tongues, which we see in the book of Acts, when we're speaking actual human languages to people. When you saw the Holy Spirit fell in Acts on Pentecost, they spoke the gospel to um, the, the different dialects and languages and everyone heard the gospel in their own tongue and was converted and it was amazing. That's, a, that's also a type of tongue. So just some research I did you guys can do what you want with. Please study this more on your own, okay? I just want to whet your appetite. Like, study it more on your own. Get into 1 Corinthians 14 and say, what do I think about this? The last thing I wanted to do was come up here and say, hey guys, tongues don't exist or hey guys, we should speak in tongues every week all at the same time. Like, I don't know. Like, get in there, read it. Paul has some very specific guidelines that we're going to go over. But you guys decide where you're at on this, and please study it. So here's six biblical guidelines for tongues. Number one, Paul defines tongues as a way that we talk to God. We see this in our text. In verse two, he says, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Okay? Seems to me pretty obvious that this is a real thing there, uh, that it is an actual way of communication to God. Number two, this is something Paul desires for them all. Okay, he says in verse five, I want you all to speak in tongues. He just does. He's, he says it. It's there. I want you all to speak in tongues. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, he says in verse one, okay? Now, let me know, and we'll get to this. He doesn't say you all are going to speak in tongues or you all have to speak in tongues. He said, I just, I desire that you would. It's a gift. It's something that God may or may not have for you to walk in. So therefore, it is something we have the privilege of asking God for, okay? Now, I'll, I'll tell you guys right now, I've never spoken in tongues. I never have. But I've asked God for it a couple of times. I said, Lord, if this is real, if this is a gift that you want to give me, then I want to do it. But if it's not, that's okay. If it's going to make me prideful or if it's going to lead me astray or, or if it's just something you don't have for me, that's fine. But it's our privilege to ask our dad. It's our privilege to ask our God, hey, if this is a gift for me, I'd like it. And that's okay. Thirdly, biblical guidelines for tongues. Uh, not everyone can have this gift. Okay? This is important. 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 11 says, For to no one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the same Spirit, or by one Spirit. 
to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. The point is, everyone has different gifts, everyone has different things that God gives them to walk in and to use, and not everyone's going to have that. Now, some believe, and I feel like, I want to camp on this for a second because I feel like it's important. Some believe that speaking in tongues is a sign that you have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Okay, and if you believe that, I'm sorry. I, I just, I disagree. No, they would believe that Holy Spirit, that, that when the Holy Spirit fills you, um, and first of all, let me explain that they believe that there's two things. You get saved, and then you get the second blessing. So salvation, and then filled with the Holy Spirit. And that when you get filled with the Holy Spirit, that's when you speak in tongues. And when you speak in tongues, that's how you know when you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. I um, have a few, few, few problems with that. Uh, I believe that the Holy Spirit is the one that indwells you and allows you to be saved in the first place. I believe that if the Holy Spirit didn't come into my heart and change my heart and give me a new heart, I would never have gotten saved. Jesus never spoke in tongues that we know of. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not saying he didn't speak in tongues, but he, was never filled, he, was, he, was never, he never spoke in tongues and he was filled with the Spirit. The other reason I have a problem with that is it becomes a point of pride, and I've seen this firsthand. Oh, you, you don't have the second blessing? Well, I didn't know there was a second blessing. <laughs> yeah. So you're, you're down here when you get saved, and then the second blessing, and you're up here, and then when you speak in tongues, you're up here, and it's like, is that really the way king, the kingdom works? I thought my worth was in Christ. I thought my worth was in Christ. I didn't know that there was, like, different levels of attainment. I mean, and this was really hard for me. I had to wrestle with this at the conference center I worked at because people told me that, and I never spoke in tongues. So I said, am I not filled with the Holy Spirit? This kind of hurt me a little bit. I'm not filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, I, I can speak words of, of prophecy. I, can, I, can, I have gifts of, of teaching and knowledge and, 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 and things like that, but that means I'm not filled with the Holy Spirit because I haven't spoken in tongues. It was kind of, it's almost like a point of pride for people. And the Corinthians, let's remember, were steeped in pride. This was the issue here. They were prideful in their gifts. They wanted more and more and more and more gifts for self-serving reasons. They had pride there. May we not go down that same road and say, well, if you speak in tongues, you're at a higher level of spirituality. I disagree. Our worth is in Christ. It's his righteousness imputed to us that gives us our standing with him, not our own works, not our own giftedness. There's also a reason Paul spends an entire chapter on this. You guys kind of wonder that? I mean, here we are going through 1 Corinthians, and he has a whole chapter on tongues and, and prophecy. He doesn't spend that much time on any of the other gifts. And I think it's because it's easy to become prideful with those things. And Corinth was prideful in those things, and Paul wanted to refute that, put boundaries around that and say, look, this is good, but it's good in a certain way, and it's to be done in a certain way. And lastly, this can cause people to force the gifts. If you believe that there's a higher level to attain to, and it's speaking in tongues or whatever, then you're going to begin to force it, and I've seen that happen. I've been prayed for by a guy before that had his hand on my forehead, and he was trying to push me over to get slain in the spirit, and I just was like, man, what are you doing? My back hurts, you know? <laughs> Cut it out. It, it can cause people to force it. It can cause people to force it. The Spirit decides who gets these gifts and when they get the gifts. Look at our text in verse 11. All these that are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. The Spirit decides who gets the gift. It's not for me to force. It's not for me to do the right thing so that I get the gift. I can ask God for it, and he may... But it's not something I can force. Number four, we're talking about biblical guidelines for tongues. 
Paul speaks in tongues. Did you guys know that? Paul speaks in tongues. He says it in verse 18. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Well, for those that would say, well, I don't believe tongues exist, well, I would say, well, what was Paul doing? And there's arguments for that. That's fine. It seems foolish to disregard something that Paul the Apostle found value in. So it's a valuable thing. It's, it's, it's something. It has weight. Number five, interpretation should be sought after and interpretation is required for public use. Write, write this down. This is, in, this is important. If, if you want to encompass one of the main points in chapter 14 that we're looking at, it's this. Prophecy, or I'm sorry, interpretation should be sought after and interpretation is required for public use. It's required for public use. In our text, in verse 13, if you look down, he says, one who speaks in tongues should pray for the power to interpret. Okay, one who speaks in tongues should pray for the power to interpret. I truly believe if you desire to speak in tongues in a public setting and you don't have a desire for translation, then you might need to check your heart because it's self-exalting. It's self-exalting. It's not something that's going to build anyone up unless there's a translation. Paul says, if you're just up there just speaking in tongues and no one can understand what you're saying, just drawing attention to you, it's distracting and no one gets built up, no one gets fed, no one gets edified. So there has to be interpretation. Look at verse 27 and 28. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn. And let some, someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Paul puts some pretty obvious parameters around this gift. He says only two or three at most, and each in turn, let someone interpret. If there is no interpreter, then be quiet. Okay? Lays it out pretty, pretty clearly there. Number six. Again, this is a huge topic of our text. Prophecy is superior to tongues. Prophecy is superior to tongues. Paul says this over and over for two reasons. Number one, prophecy builds up the church. Okay, He says in verse 5, Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. He says, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more than that, I want you to prophesy. Now, i got to say this. I think... Unfortunately, the reason that these gifts of tongues and prophecy are so abused in the church in America specifically is because we are a self-centered and self-obsessed people. We are. Everything we do is about us. Everything we do is for our own entertainment, from putting a hot pocket in the microwave to direct TV. It's all about our comfort. It's all about us. It's all self-serving. It's, we're self-obsessed people. We are. And so was the Greek Roman culture at that time. So was Corinth. And I think what happens is that God gives these gifts, emphasis on gifts, to be given to each other to edify the church selflessly, and we take them for ourselves. What that looks like is people coming to church for nothing more than an emotional and ecstasy-type experience. Not coming to church, and we could do the same thing, even though we don't roll around on the ground. I'll tell you what, you come to church because you want the emotional experience. Come on, Jeff, fire me up, man. Come on, Sam, let's, let's do this. I want an emotional experience. Instead of coming to church to say, I'm going to serve the body with the gifts that God's given me. God's given you the gift of helps. Great. God's given you the gift of prophecy. Prophesy. But it's for the church. It's for the edifying of the church. It's not self-serving. What happens is people go to church and use the gifts for their own self-feeling addiction. They need more feeling. I need to feel God more. I need to feel him more. So they'll even pay pastors thousands of dollars and pledge money so that they could feel God more. 
It's dangerous. It's dangerous. The gifts were given for the church to edify the church out of love, as we learned last week, because we love each other. If I have a gift of tongues, it's not something to be used for myself in a public setting. It's something to be used to edify the church. That's why there has to be an interpretation. Paul gives us a great illustration of this. I love it. In verse 6 through 11 in our text, take a look at it. He says, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you? unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. If even lifeless instruments such as a flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air, there are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. So what Paul is here, he's using a music illustration. I love that, because I'm the music guy, right? So I get that. He says, if you play one note, no one knows what you're singing. For instance, Lord, I need you, oh, I need you. What if I got up here on Sunday and I said, yeah. Yeah. Come on, guys, let's worship. Yeah. I mean, some people do that on, like, rap records. I mean, I get that. You know, yeah, whatever. But, <laughs> but it's, well, you see what Paul's saying here? No, it's, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. It's, it's more than just that one note. It's, it's, it's in order to understand what's being sung there, you need multiple notes. Music's cool. There's low end, mid range, and high frequency. So, for instance, you got bass up here. Bass is your low end. You got piano, it's kind of a mid-range instrument. It hits the mid-level of sonic space. You have electric guitar, that's your high end. Cymbals, snare, that's high end. If you only have one side of that, if you only have the low frequencies, you're not really going to be able to get the fullness of that. If you only have the high frequencies, you're not really going to get the fullness of that. You listen to an orchestra, you have every frequency range, you have every bit of sonic space being used in artistic and perfect ways. And what Paul's saying is the church, the gifts, was made to be beautiful, to be uplifting, to be edifying. And when you just stand up and say, I should have bought a Honda, and no one translates it, (laughs) then you're just drawing attention to yourself. And you're just up there going, yeah, you know, no one's going to sing with you. No one's going to be able to rejoice with you, okay? So that's the illustration he gives. The second reason why prophecy is superior to tongues is prophecy convicts the non-believer of sin and leads to repentance, or the believer for that, that matter. Listen to verse 23 and 25 of our text. He says, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and the outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? You guys are nuts. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That's what we want. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We want, for those that are not saved or even for those that just need to be uh, convicted of sin, we want them to hear the truth so that they, in the depths of their heart, can find repentance with the Lord. So prophecy, prophecy is direct to the heart. I don't know if you guys have ever experienced that, but you give someone a word or you tell someone a scripture or, or you share something with them and it goes straight to their heart. That's prophecy. And it allows repentance. It allows restoration. It's edifying. It's uplifting. It's encouraging. It's superior. Paul says, tongues is great. There's a place for it, but prophecy is superior. Okay? 
Now, lastly, in closing, I want to talk about the balance of all this. And this is where I, I really think God is a heart. So if you're sleeping, wake up. Um, <laughs> there's a balance to all of this, okay? Emotion and mind. There's these two camps. I honestly believe, and you can disagree with me, I honestly believe that most of the people at the, the hyper-Pentecostal, even just the charismatic-style churches, are there mostly because they're wired that way, okay? You guys, any of you guys that are married, you know, like your spouse is wired differently than you? Well, people are wired differently than each other. So some people, they're just very emotional. I mean, they're emotionally driven. Like, when they're going to make a decision, it's like, man, I just feel like I need to go get a cheeseburger, you know? Not like, I'm hungry, therefore I will go get a cheeseburger. No, like, I feel like a cheeseburger, you know? It's feeling. They're feeling-based. They're feeling-driven. Some people are emotion junkies. Some people are feeling junkies. I feel like a lot of times, I feel like, (laughs) I think, I think that a lot of the people that are in those charismatic Pentecostal, uh, especially the hyper, they they just thrive on that. That's how they're wired. So when they listen to a preacher and the preacher says, hey, we're just going to speak in tongues and we're going to get emotional, they're like, yeah, that's how I speak. That's how I work. Emotional. Okay? Then you got the other side. This is it over here. You got the other side. Truth. Okay? But, but this is, we're talking about an extreme here. You got the guys that say, no, 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 I don't want any emotion. I'm going to come to church in my suit and tie. I'm going to sit in my pew. The guy's going to lead a hymn that we all know. I'm going to sit here with my hands in my pockets. I'm not going to allow any emotion to stir me or to cause me to do anything. All I want is the theology. Just give me the theology and I'm going to go home. Okay? Preacher, just give me some good points that I can beat my friends over the head with and then let me go home. It's just truth, 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 right? And then you got like feeling, 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 feeling over here. Well, they're both wrong. They're both extremes. There's a perfect example of this. If you guys ever get on YouTube, find uh, John Piper and John MacArthur uh, panel discussion. If you guys are familiar with those two pastors, it's hilarious because John Piper's like, like, this is an emotional guy. I mean, I love it about him. He's just like, the Lord, you know? And like he could just like burst into tears right there. And then John MacArthur's like this just, truth, man, like, I don't have time for emotion, like, I'm just, I'm discipled and obedient, and just keep your emotion, like, they're just total polar opposites, they both love Jesus, they're both awesome, on this panel, it's so funny, because John Piper's just talking about this time where he was sitting on his porch, and he just wept, just wept, and he didn't even know why, (laughs) I just wept, and John MacArthur's over here, and he's looking at him with his arms crossed, are you kidding me? The, the guy that's running the panel, he's all, you, you've never experienced anything like that? He's all, I don't have time for that. <laughs> it's, so, it's so hilarious. I wish I should have brought the clip for you guys. But that's just such an example. I mean, we're just wired differently. Those men, those men both love Jesus. They're both sound biblical teachers, but they're wired very differently. They're wired very differently. And at, at Heritage, where's the balance here in this? I want to talk really quick about the importance of truth, Okay. The importance of truth, in verse 20 of our text, it says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be, inf- be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. So Paul's desire for us is not that we just turn off our brain and say, no, it's all emotion. His desire for us is that we grow up, that we study our Bibles, that we say, you know what, I'm not going to listen to that preacher because I know that he's a false teacher because I've studied my Bible. Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your what? Your mind, right? That by testing you may discern what is the will of God. Discernment comes through the mind, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The process by which God sanctifies is through the mind. 
He wants to transform our hearts, but he goes through our mind. Ephesians 4, 11 through 15, in regards to sanctification, Paul says, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful schemings. He's talking about, guys, grow up and be adults in the Lord so that when someone comes along and teaches a false teaching, you're not like a child tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Get rooted, get grounded. We need truth. We need theology. We need to know our Bible because there's a lot of false out there. Would you agree with that? On the other end, on the other side, okay, where does emotion fit into this? Well, first of all, we don't want to be like the Pharisees. They were so truth-focused that they were whitewashed tombs. They were so focused on, well, we know the Torah. We have it memorized. Jesus says, your heart is far from me. Where is your heart? Where is your feeling? Where is your emotion? The reality is that God has created us to be emotional. God made you guys to be emotional. He made you that way. He gave you anger. He gave you joy. He gave you peace. He gave you all of the emotions that we experience. He designed you that way. Those have to fit in somewhere. What's the balance? I believe that either extreme is unhealthy. The balance is right here. Look at our text. I I highlighted this verse because I thought it was cool. Verse 14 and 15. Paul says, For if I pray in a tongue... Okay. My spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? Okay. So he's wrestling with this too. What's the, what's the balance between truth and faithfulness and feeling and emotion? Where's the balance there? He says, what am I to do? He says, I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Guys, as your worship pastor, this is what I want us to do. I don't want us to click our brains off and go into some ecstasy state where we don't even know what's going on or what truth is. I want us to use our brains to worship God, but may our brains be what fuels our emotion. It says in John 4.24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. He wants our minds, and he wants our emotions. John Piper, again, he says theology should be the fuel on the flames of our heart that causes heartfelt emotional worship to God. Man, when you hear theology, that should make your heart yearn, stand. I don't know what that was. Am I still, am I still here? Does anyone have an interpretation for that? <laughs> hello, hello, hello. Am I back? Oh, praise the Lord. Whew. It's getting too fired up, I guess. Where was I? God wants our minds and he wants our emotions. So John Piper says, he says, theology should be the fuel on the flames of our heart that causes heartfelt emotional worship to God. So that theology should stir our emotions, that we would give God our praise with our heart, our longings, our joy, all of that, in spirit and in truth. I think about a vivid illustration of that is the hymns sometimes, Versus like some of our modern worship. I love them both. I love some of these weighty, like, it's just like eating like a, like a steak, you know what I mean? Like a theological worship song that's just like dripping with all of these awesome points about adoption and, and all these crazy cool things, theologically rich. And then you got like this more modern song that, and some of them are like rice cakes. I don't like those. We don't sing those here, but... but there's some of these newer songs, they're just so heartfelt, and they're so passionate, and Lord, I just want to sing, I want to, you know, I mean, just, just passion and emotion. 
So we sing them both, right? Because they're both good. I want the theology to spur on my worship. But I don't want to just be all theology. May we be a church that sings truth, that we engage our brains when we worship God and say, Lord, this is why you're worthy. This is why I need you. Because you're faithful, you're good, you're true, you're everlasting. And I know why I believe in you. I know why I believe the Bible. I know who you are and why I believe that. And I allow my emotions to worship you because I'm grounded and I'm not going to get tossed around. The reality is music in and of itself is emotional. So we can't just rely on emotional music to create emotion. There has to be truth. There has to be the mind engaged in that. And that's our heart here at Heritage, guys. One last example. Christ modeled this perfectly. He modeled it perfectly. Let me explain Christ called the most influential leaders whitewashed tombs, okay? He was not afraid of truth. Christ did not follow his emotions when he asked the Father for another way. You remember when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and his emotions are freaking out. I mean, he's sweating blood. He's about to take the wrath of God on the cross. Can you imagine the fear, the trembling that he's feeling in that moment? His emotions are running rampant, but yet, but yet he submits to the truth that the Father knows best, that the Father is working, that the Father has plans, and he says, not my will, but your will, right? He claimed lordship even under the crucifixion. He was all about truth, but at the same time, he wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, his friend Lazarus. He saw his friend in the tomb and his other friends, his sisters, weeping out of pain because of the death that had taken place, and he wept with them. Jesus had emotion. He did. He flipped tables out of anger in the temple with the money changers, didn't he? He was the perfect balance of that, spirit and truth. Heritage, may we be a church, may we be a church that passionately and thought-provokingly and emotionally worships God. Don't be afraid of emotion. Don't be afraid of some of these gifts because they've been misused. Let's find the middle, and the middle is Jesus, right? Let's find the middle. Let's be people that love theology, but that give our hearts and our emotions over to God. Amen? Let's pray. We'll have Mike come up and uh, do one last song. Actually, will you guys stand? God, I just... Uh, so thankful, Lord, that you are the greatest joy, the greatest pleasure in the universe. Lord, I thank you that you created us with feeling, with longing, with desires that you intended to quench, that you in intended to fulfill with yourself. I thank you that heaven will be to know you, the eternal, living, and true God. Lord, all that we need is in you. God, I thank you for worship and expression, an emotional but thought-provoking expression of our gratitude and faith and love to our King. I thank you, Jesus, that you are our prophet. Lord, that we look to you to speak to us. I thank you for gifts like tongues and prophecy, God. I pray that our church would be good theologians. They would go home and study that and decide where they lie on that. I pray, Lord, if you have people in this church that you would like to walk in gifts of tongues and prophecy, that you would release them in that, Lord. I pray, God, that we would always submit to your scriptures, Lord, that if you say through the, the Apostle Paul that we're to do it in a certain way that we would submit to that, God. And Lord, now as we worship you, I pray you would fill this place with your spirit. We love you, Jesus. In your name, amen.